With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe-Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lock-away channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. Hello there. Welcome back to Latina to Latina. On this podcast, I talk with Latinas about how they got to be so amazing. Today, I'm talking to Paula Mendoza, a filmmaker, the former creative director of the Women's March, and the co-founder of the Resistance Revival Chorus. Most recently, she co-organized the I Am a Child campaign to protest the separation of immigrant families. As an artist and an activist, Paula has created new ways for herself and for others to exist and resist. What was your first act of activism or resistance? In my life? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a really good question. So we can go really deep, but I would, the first thing that popped into my head is when I was 14, my mom sent me back to live in Colombia. And she sent me back to live with my aunt and my cousin at the time. And um, she sent me back because when I was 12, I started gangbanging in L.A. And my mom as an immigrant, as a working single mom, had no idea what was going on until two years later when I was 14. She realized, oh, wow, she's going to end up in jail, on drugs or dead. I got to do something. So she told me on Friday that she was sending me back to Columbia on Monday. And she took away all of my shoes because at that time I was running away a lot. So that was her way to make sure that I didn't run away, which was a brilliant move. And then she stayed in my room for two days. She posted up with me. And then she literally took me to the airport and off I went. When I got to Columbia, I went to my aunt's house. And my aunt lived a very, very wealthy lifestyle in Columbia. So I went from poor working class in the United States to like, the point zero yeah, fresh zero princess of Bogota. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it was crazy. So I had two maids, a chauffeur, a huge apartment. My aunt let me do whatever I wanted. And I went to an all girls Catholic private school. And so in Colombia, in Bogota, there's very strict class structures that exist. And I didn't understand them, nor did I care about them. Um, and I remember clearly 
a few blocks from our house, there was this one area where a lot of street kids would sell food and sell candy and cigarettes. Anyway, so one day after school, I was there, and this little girl, her name was Lady, she was five years old, she was selling gum. And so I bought some gum, and I gave her $3, and the gum was like 75 cents or something, and she did the math really quickly. And I was super impressed. And so I was like, well, I gave her another math problem, and she resolved it like that. And I was like, well, what if I give you $10, and it cost me three seventy-eight? What do I need? What do I get back? And she, like, responded right away. And I was amazed by this little girl lady, and I sat down on the street with her in my school uniform, and she had her little school uniform on, and we talked and hung out for, like, three or four hours. And everyone on the street, I'll never forget looked at me like they couldn't believe that I, someone that was very high class, was talking with this little girl who obviously was very, very poor. And it got me really angry. And then that was my act of rebellion, of resisting against a class system that I didn't believe in, I didn't understand, and quite frankly wasn't fair because this little girl was incredibly brilliant but was relegated to selling candy on a street corner to survive and be able to go to school. And how, in your mind, does that relate to the activism that you do now? All the work that I do as an activist and as an artist as well boils down to making sure that the humanity of every individual is respected. Everything that I do. And so that moment with Lady was seeing her humanity and demanding that other people around us saw her humanity as a child, as a brilliant child. And so I think that that is how it connects and how I try to move through the world. You come at this as an immigrant. Your family came from Colombia to the U.S. when you were three. What drove them here? My mom decided to come here for two reasons. One, it was a financial issue in Colombia. They didn't have the financial security that they wanted. And also her marriage was falling apart. And so she felt that if they started fresh anew in the United States, that those two things could resolve themselves. One of them was resolved. That was the financial stability of our future life. The marriage falling apart did not get resolved. In fact, it got much worse. So after my father came here a few months earlier, and then my mom, my brother, and I came to the United States to meet up with him. And a few months after we got here, my dad told my mom that he was going to work, and then he never came back. He abandoned us. So I was three. My brother was six. My mom at that time was 24. And she was left with no English, no money, no home, no family, because we were the only ones here. And yet she did what so many immigrant moms and moms across time and culture and countries have done. She made magic happen. She put food on the table somehow when we didn't have food, when we were homeless She made a way out of no way, and that is the beauty and the determination of immigrants. So when I see immigrant moms going through what they are going through in an environment that demonizes them and and dehumanizes them and literally takes away their children now, it is in so many ways the destruction of this country. And... And you feel it because you lived it. And and I think part of what is so interesting about your work is that 
You know, we talk about immigrants as though they're not moms, <laughs> and we yeah. talk about women as though they're not immigrants. And you very often bring all of this together for us. So you recently shared the story of your mom's abortion and how much that meant socioeconomically to your family. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Yeah. So um, I don't know when I found out about my mom's abortion, but it's something that has always been in my consciousness. Essentially, the story is after my mom was abandoned by my father, my mom found out that she was pregnant with her third child to my father. But yet she was pregnant in a circumstance with no family, no money, no education, no home, a three-year-old and a six-year-old, and no idea where her husband was. So she had to make a choice. She had to make the choice of protecting her two children that were three and six or terminating her pregnancy. My mom at that time was a Catholic. She would have never considered having an abortion ever in her life. But she found herself in a circumstance where having a third child was literally putting in jeopardy the future of her two other children. So my mom went and had a safe abortion in a medical facility that took care of her. And then she had to, after the abortion, continue with How do I feed my kids? How do I house them? How do I get myself on my feet? That right there is the definition of intersectionality, right? Like that is what it is. My mom as an immigrant, as a abandoned woman, as a poor woman, intersected with all these social systems. Yeah. She had the ability to choose to have an abortion. And so I am so grateful for that act because if not for that act, I don't know if we would have survived. And my mother is, has been open about her abortion, is an ardent supporter of the ability to choose and the right to choose. And it's been astounding people's reaction to the sharing of that story. And I think that that's what's very important is for women to share those complicated stories around abortion because we think of them as one thing, but they are by far not. I have one more very personal question, and then I will lay off and we can talk about art. Which is, when you are that little and your dad leaves, how do you learn to trust men again? How do not all men become people who leave? Oh, that's a really good question. And so my father's abandonment has been a lifelong journey for me. Growing up, I was very angry and... My anger resulted in a lot of rebellion, but I had an extraordinary amount of women in my life. My family, my mom's side of the family, because I don't talk to my father's side of the family. Women were always very present and men not so much. And so I made a very conscious decision at some point that I wanted good, positive, healthy men in my life because my father and all that history was so negative. And I don't know how that happened, but it was just the thing that I knew that I wanted to do. And if there was a toxic man in my life, it was just pushed out very easily for me. And I ended up finding a really great guy who is kind and generous and gives me every reason for which to trust him. And we partner in work and in art. And we literally grew up together because we were children when we met each other. We were 22 and now we have a son together. Um, And so... I want to believe, again, and this is just kind of the foundation of all the work that I do as an artist and as an activist, in the inherent good of people. I want to go into the world believing that everyone is coming from a place of love, 
that folks are kind and generous because if I don't, this world is so ugly and so atrocious. I think that will break me. I'm sitting here interviewing you as a former creative director of the Women's March, co-founder of the Resistance Revival Chorus. Like, you're a trained theater actor. Yeah. <laughs> like, we could be sitting here talking about your Tony Award. Like, this is a very different life that you were leading. So how do you go from gangbanging to art? Ah, uh, an opportunity. So my rebellious spirit fit very well into a gangbanging lifestyle, right? And then when that same spirit was turned towards something else, telling stories, being an actor, it fell right into that. And, and my anger that I had, which was the driving force when I was gangbanging, could now be expressed in a different form that I had never even thought of or imagined. But what was the opportunity? I literally walked into a theater high school class. That class was the first theater class in 30 years because they didn't have any money until that moment to fund a theater class. And that theater class, my senior year of high school, changed my life. It put me on a trajectory towards the theater. And I read things and I saw the world and I saw how people could channel these feelings into something positive and I literally fell in love with the concept and the idea of telling stories. And then I majored in theater at UCLA, and then I got my graduate degree in theater as an actress and a director. Um, And then I started getting involved in movies. But again, that same rebellious spirit made me realize that those stories that were being told were about white, straight men. And I didn't fit into that formula. And I wanted to do something about it. And what I decided to do was to direct. And so I started directing My second film was a film called Entre Nos, and it's the story of my mom, the story that I've been telling. And that was in 2010. And so immigration was a hot topic issue, very divisive. And yet there was the story of this woman who was an immigrant who in the movie is unclear if she's documented or undocumented. And it was human and it was dignity and it was surrounded in love. And the film cut through the politics and like again into people's hearts. And then I found the power of using story to shift the cultural narrative of this country. And I started working with Michael, my partner, to hone in on how we use story to create the world that we want. And now I have lots of theories around that and and lots of test stories. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what I have been doing for the past 15 years of my life as an artist is telling the stories of immigrants that are filled with dignity, with love, with honesty, and with complexity. Because I feel that that's how we will shift the heart of America. And when you have cultural shift, narrative shift in a country, you have long-lasting policy change as well. Most recently, you launched the I Am a Child campaign, Mm -hmm. which is an homage to the 68 I Am a Man campaign, where sanitation workers in Memphis protested with signs that said, I am a man protesting the deplorable conditions that they worked in. For people who see an immigrant child Mm -hmm. and don't see a child, do you think that those images break through? I hope that they break through. I got the idea months before, and the initial idea was to do the signs that said, I am an immigrant, because I wanted the concept again in homage to the 1968 pictures was They were trying to humanize black men, and I wanted to humanize immigrants, right, because we know that the president is constantly trying to dehumanize 
immigrants. But I couldn't identify why it didn't feel 100% correct. And then the family separation started. And I knew instantly that's what it was, that it needed to be I am a child. And so the concept is that, exactly that, to humanize children and, and to realize that the fact that this country has separated over 3,000 children from their families is a, an abomination. And we can't forget that they are children. And to me, if you can't understand that, and there are people that, aren't, that don't understand it because the responses on my Twitter feed and on my social media is, well, their parents broke the law, so they should, their parents should be held responsible. And so I don't make my art for those people mm-hmm. because I think they're lost and confused. And I don't need to spend my time trying to convince sick people of the humanity of, of children. I make my art to, A, inspire us to continue to keep fighting, but also for those people that aren't educated enough on this issue, for those people that are unsure of what's going on, for those people that aren't engaged, to hook into their heart, right? Because I think we in the United States are suffering from a mass contraction of the heart. And that's why we are where we are in this moment. And art and the power of artists is to tap into the heart of the, the American people and open it back up, expand it. Toni Morrison said that, that the heart is a muscle and love is a thing that expands our heart. And so that is what I am trying to do with the artwork that I create and what we were trying to do with that campaign in particular. And also a piece of what you were trying to do with the Resistance Revival course. Yeah, yeah. The Resistance Revival course is a course that has over 50 women that come together and we sing protest songs, old songs, new songs, Negro spirituals, hymns, all of it, because we believe that joy is an act of resistance. Well, I went down to the rich man's house and I took back what he stole from me. Took it back, took back my dignity. Took it back, took back my Talk to me about joy as an act of resistance. I believe that we are living in an authoritarian regime. I think if we look at what is happening in our everyday lives, The pillars of a dictatorship and an authoritarian regime are being built very strongly. And what happens in those moments in time, history shows that those regimes begin to control everything that we are trying to do. They start to control the the media. They start to control the narrative of the country. They start to control the people by laws, each law becoming more and more extreme. And so the one thing that they can't ever control or they shouldn't ever be able to control is this concept and this idea of joy because the joy is mine, it is yours, it is ours. And if we are able to enliven that joy and give birth to that joy, then it is a way of rebelling. It is a way of being in resistance. It is a way of planting the seeds for the future of a long fight and battle ahead. I have to be honest with you, I don't think I got it until I watched the chorus behind Kesha at the Grammys. Because I think up until that moment to me, it was about Trump and about an act of resistance to Trump. And we're living in a moment where it's bigger than that. Mm -hmm. Um, And for Kesha, who had been a victim of abuse, to stand up in a room with people who had diminished her, who had not listened to her, and to express not only her, her ability to survive, 
but her ability to thrive and to find joy and to and to wish that for someone else. I hope your soul is changing, changing. I hope you find your peace. All of a sudden, I was like, "Oh, this is this is so much bigger than Trump." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. It is about. We know this, that Trump is the symptom of a disease, of a much larger and bigger disease. And so if we don't deal with the larger issue that is the disease of inequality, the disease of racism, of sexism, of violence, of the destruction of our planet. If we don't deal with that, we will be in a worse situation in the future because there will be a rise of hate. There will be a rise of of fascism. There will be a rise of of sexism. And so I think we need to start looking at this, and I hate to use these terms, but it is a culture war. Can you talk to me a little bit then about your experience of bringing that to scale, either through the Women's March or through some of the other work you've done? Yeah. So pre-Me Too, and this is important in the sense of the power of storytelling, when the scandal with Bill O'Reilly broke, I remember very clearly it was 11 o'clock at night and Mercedes-Benz said that they were no longer going to advertise with Bill O'Reilly. So I called our social media director and I was like, yo, we need to do a storytelling campaign around women sharing their stories of sexual harassment in the workforce. She was like, great, what's the hashtag? We went back and forth with some hashtags. The hashtag that we decided on was Drop O'Reilly. We launched it the next day. And hundreds of thousands of women shared their personal stories around sexual harassment that went from rape all the way to women being touched inappropriately on their shoulders. Everything was there to be told. And it was women sharing their stories. And that, in conjunction with various other organizations, got Bill O'Reilly fired within two weeks, right? So the idea and the concept of scaling, of using our stories to get what we want, started in that place. So the Women's March is an opportunity that I pursued and fell into my lap. You called Carmen Perez. Exactly. I called Carmen. I was like, Carmen, let me get down. She was like, yeah. Again, I had never like been an activist, quote unquote. I had made movies and I had produced films, but all of those talents fit in perfectly well. And I got there and I saw gaps and holes in visuals and storytelling and narrative in what were we going to say on the stage and I was like this needs to get fixed like this is what I think we should do this is what I think we should do and I jumped into the role of organizing the story the cultural narrative the artists and I became the the artistic director and after that also was very much engaged with social media on the storytelling strategy around the women's march looking back on the women's march the successes it has are obvious. What could it have done better? I think the success of the Women's March made leadership want to try and own everything. And I think where we are, particularly with social media, is movements are leaderless. Movements are leaderful. They should be in this moment, right? So what Florida is doing, Florida should be doing on its own. And Florida knows what Florida needs and might need help from, quote unquote, national. But you realize you sound in this moment like a conservative. (laughs) Do I? Yes, because you're like states rights. Oh, I guess so. (laughs) I guess so. But I'm not saying I believe in federal rights and state rights. I'm just saying that folks need to be able to, that's hilarious, 
<laughs> folks need to be able to organize within their own communities. And folks need to be empowered to be able to organize in that way. And I think the exciting part of what the Women's March did do was a new structure for organizing. The Women's March had over 500 sister marches across the country, which was the first time that that structure really had been seen on such a massive level. March for Our Lives had over 800 satellite marches across the country. Families Belong Together had over 750 marches across the country on that one day. So what that means is that people no longer have to go to one place to feel part of a movement. They can go in their communities, but then we also have to give them the tools to continue those movements within their communities. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blow-up barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blow-ups. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size 8. And now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important. And it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? <laughs> they do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th. At 6.30 p.m., we're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. So, to wrap it all up, what's your favorite song from the chorus? My favorite song from the chorus is Woke Up This Morning. And the reason why is because... I would have the chorus come and rehearse at my house, and Mateo, oh, it's so cute, he would ask me to sing him to sleep singing Woke Up This Morning. Every night for like four months, I would sing to him Woke Up This Morning. And it was just this really beautiful moment between me and my son where I would literally be saying the words to him, Woke Up This Morning with freedom on my mind. That is one of my favorite songs. Big departure from kissing him on election night and telling him how sorry you were. Yeah. That night, when I kissed him and I apologized in his little ear, I couldn't have imagined that we 
would have been able to fight so well and so powerfully and so strategically. I am more inspired by the love of strangers in this country than by the cruelty of the administration. Paula, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us today. Latina to Latina was originally co-created with Bustle. Now, the podcast is executive produced by Juleka Lentigua-Williams and me. Sound edited by Aluakemi Aladasui. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Send us ideas for guests or talk to us about what's on your mind right now. Remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. And please leave a review. We love hearing from you. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.